1: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
2: You know, I I wouldn't want to put the blame on players or coaches or uh, scouts or anybody of that matter. But I can tell you that, that this team that we built was was one that was a unified vision and it hasn't worked. So I accept my responsibility in that, uh, in that capacity as well. As we look to the future, the trade deadline's coming up. I think we have to face our reality to some degree about where we are in the standings, like, like I said. Um, so we are going to be open-minded. We're gonna be uh, thoughtful and measured in terms of what we do as we approach the deadline, all with the eyes on trying to improve this club. Uh, our mission statement doesn't change. We're not gonna quit on this year. Um, we're going to win as many games as we possibly can. This team's shown resilience at different points of the year, and we're going to keep working to try to win as many games as possible. But we're also not going to lose sight of the second part of the vision, which is to create a sustainable product going forward where we can win on a consistent basis. How would you describe it? Mets
3: are amazing, 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 amazing.
1: There's
3: a fly ball hit on the left, waiting-
1: the world champion. Here's the one-two pitch. Check him out. Silva has 19 strikeouts. Swung on, hit on the ground
3: towards first. Roman Ventura! The Mets win 4-3! There will be a game 6! And it's a deep to left center! Andrew Jones on the run! This one has a chance!
1: Home run! Mike Piazza! And the Mets lead 3-2! to two. To left field, Floyd! And after running rough shot
3: over the National League, the Mets have a title show for it! 2006 National League
1: Here's the payoff pitch from Familia to Fowler on the way, and it's in there, strike three call! The Mets win the pennant! The New York Mets have won the National League pennant! Put it
3: in the box!
0: It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Sunday, July 14th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can interact with me at Mike Silva at Talking Mets Podcast. You can also get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. You gotta love audio, as you heard the clip leading into the show where Brody Van Wagenen essentially said, "Hey, uh, I'm at fault," and the reason I start the show off with this, and and I'll be joined in just a little bit by a friend from ESPN, 98.7 ESPN, also writes over at New York Sports Day, Rich Catino, he'll join me. Uh, The reason I start with that clip is because after the press conference on Friday and the reaction subsequently, it actually was kind of amazing to me. Brody Van Wagenen holds a press conference on Friday and... Right away, after the press conference, everybody is angry that he didn't take accountability. The fans don't like, uh, at least the fans that interacted with me over on Twitter. They don't like the way he phrased things, you know, blaming you know, or basically saying it's an organizational thing in terms of the failures that have happened. I think there was some that were angry that he even insinuated that Mickey Calloway, in the face of all the losing and the negativity, has done a pretty good job in keeping the clubhouse together. So everybody took away bad, negative opinions, I guess you would say, from Friday. And the biggest thing, and I guess, and I love Kevin Kernan over at the New York Post, but when he wrote that Brody never took accountability and never said that this disappointing season is on him, well, you just heard him say it coming into the show. And when you say the organization is at fault... That's essentially, you know, that's saying that you are at fault. I mean, when you say the organization has failed, Brody's not saying that he's an outsider looking in. It's not like a manager saying, you know, that we we as a team have really done a bad job this year. Well, yeah, the manager's part of that team, uh, the pitcher's part of that team, the shortstop's part of that team. It's not the Mets being even after two out of three this weekend in Miami. That's the Mets being nine games under five hundred. Is not one thing. It's not Robinson Cano. It's not Edwin Diaz. It's not just the starting rotation. It's not just the bullpen. I mean, there are some—it's not just Mickey Calloway. There are some that are more glaring than others. I don't really know what everybody wanted Brody Van Wagen to say. He was apologetic to the fan base. Uh, He was acknowledging that uh, they have to evaluate some of their internal processes and how they evaluate talent. Uh, He admitted that some of the moves that they thought made a ton of sense on paper when they made them in the winter have not worked out. But he also pointed out that they are going to continue to win now or try to win now and win in the future, that there is some foundational blocks to be excited about. And maybe, just maybe, those foundational blocks are a little bit different than what he had when he came in. Because when he came in, we thought the gimme, the guarantee on this team was the starting rotation. And that rotation has been anything but a gimme. It's been a disappointment, even with a great outing by Noah Syndergaard last night, and the continued, maybe not the same type of season, but Jacob deGrom continuing to be one of the top pitchers in baseball, and Zach Wheeler, for, for however long he'll be here, being a, at least at times, although albeit inconsistent, top of the rotation pitcher, They've been a disappointment, and the bullpen has been horrendous. And those are the things that I think, at least the starting rotation, that were gimmies. It was the offense that you weren't sure enough about. It was Pete Alonzo. It was Jeff McNeil. It was, you know, what what can the Mets get out of Michael Conforto? Uh, you didn't think you were going to get uh, what you have gotten out of those guys. And right now, McNeil and Alonzo are about as good of a one-two punch as, as polar opposite as you can get, but they're great foundational building blocks. And we'll get to Conforto in a little bit because I think people are disappointed in him, but I think Conforto is a good uh, third member of the band over there. So, if anything, Van Wagenen's task is much more difficult today than it was just a few months ago because I think building a rotation is much more difficult than building an offense In a lot of ways, offense right now is like the three-point shot in basketball in the NBA. If you don't shoot it, you're the outlier. And that's why everybody, regardless of what position they play, regardless of what their history has been, has said, i got to incorporate long-distance shooting into my game. And now three-pointers are the norm, not the exception. So offense and getting good offense in a lot of ways is almost the norm. And, And I'm not underscoring or underplaying what Alonzo can be, because I think he's special. Uh, and I think there's a lot to, to how special he can be. And I'm not under un, underplaying what McNeil is. I'm just saying is now building a rotation, and that's where the complexities of going forward. And that's why all this doesn't really matter. The press conference, whether he said, I'm at fault, the organization's at fault, which he did say he's at fault. You heard it. You heard it here on the show. It's about... Moving forward. It's not about the grades now. It's about moving forward. How can Van Wagenen, early in his tenure, now pivot? And he's done some really nice things, like I said in the last podcast, to build up a farm system that really has been spotty. And and one of the reasons why they are in the position they've been in the last two or three years is because that farm system hasn't been able to yield anything of impact. Now you see Alonzo and McNeil uh, – Help! imagine where they would be without those guys so the real test as I said earlier is going forward all this other noise about um, you know whether or not he took accountability it's just noise it's just that now as far as Callaway again today on display is where I think Mickey struggles and that's with the message well, more importantly it is a leak in that in this clubhouse because Rosario gets benched for not running out of ball on Saturday. The SNY broadcast has that information. Mickey tells the print media another thing. Just feeds the beast more and more. And after the game, Mickey danced his way around why Rosario was given a day off. He basically admitted it without admitting it. Basically said, it's the case, but I really wish it would have stayed internal. And I think that's the real concern is... Is that the general manager talking too much? I don't know about that. I mean, he's down in Miami, so he's there. Is that someone on the coaching staff? Is that a player? Right now, this is the second time in two weeks that something internal. First, the chair-throwing incident. Second, this Rosario situation has gotten out to the press. And a lot of times, these things in a club that is winning uh, and has uh, everyone is on the same page and everyone understands their role, a lot of times this stuff doesn't get out. Look. These are all normal things that are part of a baseball season. But these are things that get amplified by the media because it's a story. It's Like I said the other day, it's pulling the curtain back. So you really can't get mad right now at the press conference. You can't get mad and and dwell on the past. You have to look towards the future. And you have to look towards the next couple of weeks. And really to me, Right now, the Mets have in the bag Zach Wheeler, a qualifying offer, and if they don't re-sign him long-term, and it sounds like they're not, they at least have some kind of asset that they can walk away with. Can Brody Van Wagenen take the one real valuable asset in a market where, and this is how crazy the whole thing is, the Mets, who are really not in a wild card, are kind of in a wild card race six and a half out, in a season where there's so much parity, Where it's you gotta really work hard to not be in the race at this point. The Mets are not in the race. Can the Mets take the one chip that I think everybody's looking for, starting pitching, and turn it into something of value? Andrew Kashner, Homer Bailey, these are trades that were made. I think those pitchers are not in the same class as Wheeler. There wasn't a huge return that Kansas City or the Orioles got for these guys. And if the underwhelming returns, what you've seen from some of the early trades for starting pitching, the, uh, the underwhelming returns that have uh, been produced, if that's what Wheeler's going to uh, be out there and and basically fetch the Mets, then they might as well keep the qualifying offer, or give the qualifying offer, keep the draft pick if they don't sign him, and move on. But if Brody Van Wagenen can really turn around, and be who I think he is, which is a creative, out-of-the-box salesman. Exactly why he was hired was to be this different type of thinker than the traditional GM thinker. If that's who I I think he is, then I expect him to make something, uh, you know, some lemonade out of these lemons. Was it lemons out of lemonade or whatever it goes? I think he's going to make something out of this because... As the clock ticks, as we get closer to the 31st, somebody's going to need starting pitching. And someone's going to turn around and tell their analytics department, you know, that kid is great, and I know what you're saying about the value equation here, but I don't care about the value equation. I could sneak into the playoffs, and I could win, and I could win around, and I could maybe make it to the World Series. And if I win a World Series or I win a pennant, his uh, position, that GM's position in the standing with his team in the game, changes an awful lot. And that that's a value that no analytics department when it comes to hugging prospects can uh, can justify by not making a deal out there for a pitcher that potentially that's potentially because it's not an absolute could make a difference in the pennant race for a team out there so forget the nonsense uh, with uh, you know who said what the sorry you know you know all this other nonsense about the Mets are not taking accountability this the Mets are Brody's doing the exact opposite he's out there. He's, uh, he's, he's talking to the media. He did his make culpa. I don't know what you want him to say. You know, when Omar went out there and bumbled in front of the media about a decade ago, you all got mad about how, how unintelligent he sounds. Now you got a GM that actually is polished and sounds intelligent and can, can really work the media in the room. And now you say, well, he's an empty suit and he's not being uh, forthright with us. I, I just think it's you're looking for something at this point to say. Uh, there was nothing about the press conference that bothered me. I actually thought he was really uh, well-spoken on Francesa. I think that that's a uh, – I highly recommend that interview uh, with Brody, with Francesa. I think you learn a lot about how he thinks – what he thinks about the team. And even Francesa said, look, this team is not that far away. And that's a lot for Francesa to say because he's usually one to really want to go in and tweak the, uh, the Mets fan and really take the uh, myopic uh, position – and I think even Francesa realizes that you know there's some good pieces here. Now it's about trying to find the mix that makes this stew uh, actually taste good because right now it's a disjointed stew. It's a disjointed team uh, that needs a little bit of work. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, Robinson Cano is heating up. Why you should still be bullish on Robinson Cano. And if you're not, I'm going to throw you a wild trade scenario that maybe relieves the Mets of Robinson Cano but it will come at a cost, and it's not just money. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. That's the only one he's hit since April.
3: It's this ball deep to right, though. That's way back. And Robinson Cano has hit his first home run this season with a man on base. It comes at the perfect time for the Mets as they take a 4-2 lead here in the eighth.
1: Not because I hit a homer. just because I had a team to win a game and, you know, I know in the situation, I haven't been so successful this whole year. And uh, like I always say, I'm a positive guy. And you know, good thing about this game is you're always going to get the same situation over and over and over. You just got to stay positive And, you know, one day things going to turn around.
0: All right, we're back in. Robinson Cano has been a a huge topic of conversation, and I think he's been blamed for the team's woes more than anything. And I said this in the offseason when Cano was acquired. He had to get off to a good start his first year here because Mets fans historically have been brutal on imported stars from elsewhere. Think Piazza, think Beltran, almost ran both of those guys out of town really quick. Uh, You know, they— they're just brutally tough on stars coming in here. And the fact that Cano had success as a Yankee, that I'm not sure that taking on an older player, uh, especially when you trade prospects, sometimes that gets to be a little controversial. Uh, Mets fans always overvalue their prospects. I think you're seeing a little bit of that with Jared Kelnick. Uh, This was going to be a tough situation for Cano to come in here. And, You know, he said, look, uh, the the hand injuries, which were freaky, got hit in the hand a couple of times, two or three times, the oblique. I haven't felt he's been healthy, but he's been bad. And he's the first to admit it. Now he's starting to heat up. He had a good weekend, had a couple of home runs. I think he had three hits today. He's starting to show signs of being Robbie Cano. And here's why you might want to still buy stock in Robbie Cano, at least for the next two or three years. There's no doubt the last two years of the five years of that contract are dicey. And Seattle has picked up some of the money. So not, not as much as maybe some people would like, but they picked up some of the money. He averages about $24 bucks a year. And I think it comes out to, if you look at the Seattle money, I figured this out in the offseason. I think he he's really a $15 million a year ball player for the Mets when Seattle's payments are figured in. I think. i have to go back and really look at that. But he wants to make the Hall of Fame, and he's less than 500 hits away from 3,000. And with the PEDs, I think he's got that one stain on his resume that potentially could hurt him. The 3,000 hits locks him in. Factor in the, the, the that he's a second baseman. Um, you know, as of right now, he has, and this does not include uh, today's stats. Uh, As of right now, he has, for his career, uh, 316 home runs. So he's probably going to hit 400 home runs in his career uh, as a second baseman. Assuming he plays the second-base position the rest of his time here at the Mets, which is not a gimme, but I'm sure he's going to want to. Uh, This guy wants to make the Hall of Fame. This guy wants to uh, go into the Hall of Fame. That was reported uh, over the winter, that he really, the PED thing is a problem because he feels it could hurt his Hall of Fame chances. That's why I wouldn't give up on this guy that all of a sudden he's done, he's going to stop working, he's gotten paid, he doesn't care. He still needs to pad those stats for the Hall of Fame. Now, that may not make you happy to hear that, but he's going to want to put up numbers for himself, maybe not for the Mets, maybe not for winning, but at the end of the day, if a player puts up numbers and it helps the team win, who cares what the agenda is? And he's going to want to do that because he's going to want to have his accolade. And that's why I wouldn't give up on Robinson Cano yet, just because of a half a season. And as far as him being a bad guy or, or not a good player in the clubhouse, I mean, I, I bring back that, that interview that uh, Wayne Randazzo and Steve Gelbs had with Pete Alonzo earlier in the week. And he mentioned Robbie Cano talking to him, um, uh, you know, and being one of the voices that he talks to in that clubhouse. So I wouldn't discount that either. And I wouldn't discount it as a negative thing. Now, here's something wild to think about. So you want to play GM for a minute? You want to get rid of Robinson Cano? You all know that Robbie Cano and the Yankees were interested in him before the Mets acquired him. You all know that uh, he would love to play for the Yankees again, I think. I think he liked playing in New York, and I think he wanted to come to the Mets, and I think being in New York was important. But if he had his choice, clearly it would be the Yankees. Short reports in right field, chance to DH, call up the Yankees. Yankees really don't want to give up any prospects for a pitcher. It's pretty clear that they want to give up nothing and get a lot like they did in Paxton trade. They give up prospects they didn't really believe in like they did in the Sonny Gray trade. They want to do that for Marcus Stroman. They'd love to do that for Max Scherzer. That's not going to happen. But Zach Wheeler is someone that by all accounts the Yankees really like. So tell the Yankees, you know what? I'm willing to pass on the qualifying offer and the whole nonsense with Wheeler because the draft pick to me isn't important. I'm saddled with $24 million on average before the Seattle payments on Cano for the next five years. You take Cano. You take the contract. I'll give you a Wheeler. No prospects needed. And I'm going to stay silent for a second because I want you to really think about that. No prospects needed. Now, you would say, well, why would the Yankees do that? Well, the Yankees like collecting offensive talent. Um, I know they have Giancarlo Stanton and they, they the DH position when Cliff Frazier comes up. It's going to get crowded there, but listen, uh, they have DJ LeMahieu at second base, who's a better defensive player, but Cano probably with DH, and you know what, uh, LeMahieu this year has, uh, has also played a little third, he's played a little first, he's shown some versatility, you know, maybe Cano could throw in a little bit of first base there, uh, who knows when uh, Luke Voigt becomes a pumpkin, let's also remember Edwin carson who they acquired for offense, is hitting a buck 39 coming into today's action. Uh, so it's not like uh, it's a guarantee that Stanton is going to be back this year and contributing. It's not a guarantee that Encarnacion is going to be somebody that uh, uh, is going to contribute. And right now, you know, Aaron Judge, righty power. Gleyber Torres, righty power. Lemehu righty. Luke Voigt, righty. Sanchez, righty. The Yankees could use some more lefty uh, pop. And that's odd to say because it's usually the Yankees that have too much lefty pop. It's usually the other way around. They, have their, they They're the kings of lefty pop in that ballpark. So they may bite on something like that, and it would be interesting. Then you're clear of the Cano money. You're going to lose Wheeler, and you're going to get nothing back. But it's a way of rebooting. Yes, you're going to say, ah, now you gave up Kelnick so you really traded Kelnick. The Kelnick part of the deal was for Edwin Diaz, and that's a different conversation, and that's something that we won't get into right now, but that's a totally different conversation. So that's the way you could rid yourself of Robbie Cano, something to think about. But if I were a betting man, I would bet that Robbie Cano still has some baseball left because he needs there to be more baseball left for his resume so that he could pad his stats and be a Hall of Famer at some point down the road. He wants to be a Hall of Famer, so don't count him out just yet. We're going to take a quick break. When I return, Michael Conforto, he's leaving you wanting. Is it a concussion? Is it something else? Is it managing your expectations and my expectations? You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this
3: it's this ball deep toward the right field corner that ball is gone a home run it goes off the foul pole from Michael Conforto and the two hole is working already Conforto has his 17th home run he's driven in 46 and the Mets are up to nothing
0: there was an article out yesterday. I think it was just a of the record and there was speculation because Conforto has been so poor since he got injured and uh, went on the concussion list. And there was speculation about whether or not uh, his concussion is part of why he struggled. And he has struggled at, at times. And we'll put that aside because I don't know. Conforto says he's, he's fine and, and who the heck knows. Some pointed out that he struggles a little bit offensively when he's in, Center field, certainly a much more demanding position. One that he's actually taken on, uh, although he shouldn't be there. I think he's a much better corner outfielder. Uh, and he's not a bad defensive outfielder, something that he was advertised as when he came up uh, through the minor leagues. I think when I look at Conforto, I basically see Jay Bruce, better version of Jay Bruce, younger version, he's 26. And I looked, I went to baseball reference, and here's a guy that, at to this point in his career, and this includes, obviously, stats through yesterday's ball game where he hit a two-run homer. He's a guy that's going to average 30 home runs. He's going to drive in about 90 runs. He hits about 250, has an on-base percentage of about 35%, you know, an OPS over 800. That's a really solid offensive player. Maybe not a superstar, certainly not the guy that, uh, you thought would take over as the face of the franchise after David Wright left. And then I went one step further, and if you go to Baseball Reference, and you take Bryce Harper's post-2015 career, and you go from 16 till now, that's essentially Michael Conforto, maybe a smidge better. And Bryce Harper just got a 13-year deal and has all this hype and and all this stuff, and and I'm saying to myself... Michael Conforto and Bryce Harper are the same guy, in a lot of ways. Now, Harper has shown, especially in his MVP year of 2015, a tremendous upside, and that's that's the same conversation you have with Harper that you have with the Mets starting rotation. You know, Wheeler is this, but the upside is that. You know, Syndergaard is this, but the upside is that. And it's hard to ever give up the upside, and I think. In a lot of ways, Mets fans, maybe because he had that great 2017 before he separated his shoulder. And he was on his way to having a similar type of year before the concussion. And again, we don't know if this is part of it. It's total speculation. It's total media speculation. But we almost get angry because we want him to be the guy that's more in the Alonzo McNeil category where maybe he's the next notch below. And, and look, we need to see both Alonzo and McNeil do it more than just a half a season. Although for McNeil now, it's almost a full year he's been in the big league, So let's be fair there. Uh, I just want to kind of remind people that I think it's too soon to say that Conforto's a bust. does struggle sometimes against lefties. Sometimes he doesn't. Swing at the best pitches. But I also think that we shouldn't forget that he's a very useful offensive piece. Maybe he's not an all-star year in and year out, but he's certainly a good third banana on a team that has its Cog and Alonzo, its Energizer, Bunny, and McNeil. Now you have the what you hope to be a steady Conforto. And if it is the concussion, maybe he can work through that. And you would hope him to be more of the guy that you saw pre-shoulder, and that shoulder injury was devastating. I think that that set him back. So you think about it, he had the shoulder injury, then he had the concussion, so he's had some really significant things that have happened over the last two years. You throw him the fact that he's playing center field at times, so it hasn't been an easy time here for Michael Conforto. So I wouldn't give up on him yet. You still have years of control, and um, I I think sometimes it's your expectations, or my expectations, of what we think he should be That we compare him to not necessarily looking at him for who he is, which is a solid baseball player that should be playing a corner outfield position for the Mets. And maybe the second spot in the lineup will do well for him. I don't know. I don't like how Mickey sometimes and I think they're just trying some different things juggles people around. I like a consistent everyday lineup, but that's me and. I guess sometimes what the hell do I know? Hey, uh, let's take a quick break. When we return, Rich Catino, 9870 ESPN, New York Sports Day will join me. Let's get his take on Brody. Let's get his take on my thoughts about Robinson Cano. Is Robinson Cano coming out of it? Ahmed Rosario, are we making a big deal about this whole Ahmed Rosario benching and Mickey telling SNY one thing and the beat another? A lot to talk about. We always like to get Rich's take because I think he's about as balanced as there is in that uh, media scrum. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this.
3: Um, you know, I think that uh, some of that stuff that uh, that we do internally um, needs to stay with us. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, Rosie knows some of the reasons on why he didn't play today. Um, and, and like I said before the pregame, more than anything, um, I want to see Hatch out there. I want to get Hatch going. He's been swinging the bat well. Um, you know, all the other stuff is... Uh, Stuff that uh, needs to be done sometimes. Uh, uh,
2: was it disciplinary for not running out that fly ball last
3: night? I mean, I wouldn't call it disciplinary. Um, it was a night game, day game. Um, there's opportunity there for, for another player to get in there and get him going. Um, we addressed that part of it after the game last night. Um, he knows that he needs to be on second in that situation. And, and a few guys hit him up right after it happened.
2: Uh, SNY on the broadcast indicated that it was form of punishment to some degree. Um, Is that correct?
3: No, I mean, you know what? He he knows he should have run it out.
0: We're back, and joining me, Rich Catino, 9870 SPN. You guys know him over there, as well as uh, New York Sports Day. Just put up a great article about Brody Van Wagenen over at uh, New York Sportsway, NYSportsDay.com. Rich? Pleasure to have you on again. I know that we were on a couple of weeks ago. And uh, here's where I'll start you with, Rich. Uh, Brody Van Wagenen, I talked about in the opening, had a press conference on Friday, a much-anticipated press conference by fans and members of the media. And the big takeaway that has been talked about is the fact that Brody did not take personal accountability for the Mets, who are right now nine games under the that he talked about the organization, that he talked about, I guess, as a group, what they've done poorly. I have a clip that I played at the beginning of the show that states otherwise. I love Kevin Kernan. He wrote about this over at the New York Post. But generally, the fans, the media, the talking heads all feel that Brody did not take personal accountability. Let's start there. Your thoughts.
4: Well, you know how it is in New York. We kick a dog when they're down. And I've seen it my entire life. I've seen it even going back to my early days covering the Jets, where Walt Michaels had just left us and what he had to go through before, you know, what he accomplished, you know, getting the Jets to an AFC championship game. I've seen it with Rex Ryan. I've seen it with Bobby Valentine. I've seen it with Omar Minaya. I've seen it with Willie Randolph. I've seen it even to a certain extent with Pat Riley when he coached the Knicks. Um. I've seen it time and time again. And the bottom line is, in that presser that he had when the Mets came back from the All-Star break, yeah, he said, the organization's accountable. Is he not part of the organization? Is he not a big part of the organization? Is he not one of the main cogs in the organization? So it wasn't like he was saying, I'm leaving the organization, and the organization is to blame, and I'm no longer with the organization. He basically took accountability for it. He talked about what his next steps would be, You know, try to win as many games as he can this year, but also look at it long term. His messaging has never changed from the day he was hired. He came here and he said he wanted to create a winner as soon as possible, and he wanted to create a winner that would have some staying power. And everything that he's done, whether you agree with the moves or don't agree with the moves, everything he's done, I can understand the moves he made. I didn't agree with all of them. I can understand the moves he made because it fell in line with what his short-term and long-term goals were. And, you know, the other thing is I don't come from this from someone who's never interacted with general managers in the world. As you know, Mike, I have a big, long career in ad sales, and when you're in ad sales, you have to deal with general managers. You have to deal with executive vice presidents. You have to deal with heads of decision-making similar to Brody. And I'll tell you this, I was successful in all those places, but if I had someone like Brody, I might have been more successful much sooner than that. He's a good listener. He's definitely a good talker, and we all know that, and that's been overblown in the media. But he's a good listener, and he's a trustworthy executive. And I think that those things are big advantages for him making the next moves for the Mets and moving them forward. There are no general managers in this world that don't make mistakes. That hasn't been one created yet. Theo Epstein is great as he is, and he's headed for the Hall of Fame. He's made mistakes. I know nobody wants to believe this, but Brian Cashman has made mistakes. I think Frank Cashin made mistakes. I think all the great general managers make mistakes. It's not the mistakes you make. It's how you bounce back from the mistakes and how you don't let the mistakes then affect what you may do in the future. And I'll give you an example for that. Frank Cash, and I covered him early in my career when I was at Fordham. You know you know how WFUV has kids covering the Mets. I got the chance to cover him in the early 80s when he took over. And one of the first moves he made was a trade in which he traded Jeff Reardon for Ellis Valentine. He saw a, a whole, a, an all-star outfielder available and he traded where he had some depth in the organization. Because at the time remember the Mets had both Neil Allen and Jeff Reard in the bullpen. Okay? And they also had Jesse Orozco in the background, not knowing he was going to be a bullpenner, but later he became a bullpenner. Trade didn't work out. Ellis Valentine didn't perform well and it was he was being castigated and I'll never forget it in this town. In nineteen eighty one and eighty two, people were saying, Well, why Frank Cashin's got to go. He's not done anything for this team. So what did he do when the scenario happened again later in his tenure? When Keith Hernandez became available at the trading deadline, he didn't hesitate. When Gary Carter got available in the offseason between 84 and 85, he didn't hesitate. And I liked that about Frank Cashin, Okay. I liked that he made moves quickly. He did it later with Frank Viola, not afraid to trade top prospects, in addition to Rick Aguilera. And that was a risk that probably ended up being a 50-50 shot, whether it was good or bad. But it didn't hesitate. he didn't hesitate to making the move. And I get that same feeling with Brody Van Wagenen, that this canoe trade that everyone is now ready to evaluate after just a half a baseball season. Okay? And if we're gonna evaluate it now, what we have how we have to evaluate it, Mike, and you and I have talked about this, is you have to evaluate it with the information Brody and the Mariners had at the time of the trade. Because that's when you decide whether you're gonna make a trade or not. Not six months later when you see what would have happened and then pull back the hands of time and make the trade. Okay? And he made a trade in which he got to get rid of two contracts which would have been very difficult to get rid of on the open market, even at the trading deadline, and Anthony Swarzak and Jay Bruce. He also got some cash from the Mariners, and he got Robinson Cano, again, that kind of all-star-driven player that maybe last year did not have the year that we were used to seeing him have. So there was a risk there. Maybe he was coming to the end of his career, maybe he wasn't. But in addition to that, he got what many people thought were the best closer in the sport a year ago. Okay? And he had to give up two prospects. Did he give up the two best prospects in the organization? Because that's what I'm hearing from everyone. And if you think that Kalanick was a better prospect than either Pete Alonzo or Andrews Jimenez, then you didn't you didn't read your Google listings of prospects. Okay? And understand that Jimenez and Alonzo, were better prospects. We might say, well, Alonzo. Yeah, well, Alonzo was still a prospect at the time the Mets made the deal with Cano. So if you look at all this, I say to myself, is it a deal I would have made at the time? Yeah, I would have. Now, turn the clock back to where we are today. Is it a deal I would still make? And I say yes again because I'm not ready to evaluate where Diaz and Cano are. You know, <laughs> listen, the last two days have proven what, Robinson Cano is capable of. Now, whether he'll continue doing that—that's why we play the games. Edwin Diaz. All I had to do was watch him for three appearances in spring training. I knew what kind of stuff he had. Now, I think in coaching and in in, in getting a guy ready to close, maybe there were some things that had to be tweaked. And I think on the broadcast today, Keith Hernandez hit the nail on the head that I've been saying for the last three weeks, and it almost validates in my mind what a great announcer, and great player, and a quasi Hall of famer like Keith Hernandez says it, he's concentrating too much on establishing his slider. His fastball is his pitch. It's his best pitch. And the fastball has to be cemented first in a performance before you use the slider. He was doing the reverse, so I think there was a matter of tweaking that had to be done. And Edwin Diaz has pitched better since that tweaking was done, with the new pitching coach, by the way, that nobody wanted because he was an old man. And my point on all of this is that that you could debate the merits of a trade and the merits of whether a trade is good or not. But to me, you can't do that six months into a guy's tenure as general manager. It's disingenuous. It's incorrect. It's comical. It's ridiculous. And to me, if, if you didn't want Brody Van Wagenen from the beginning, if you didn't like something he said in his first press conference, and you're going to find everything you can to try to discredit the guy. I, I, I'll tell you another thing, Mike, and this is about his accessibility to the media. I have never, ever felt that Brody Van Wagenen was inaccessible to me, ever. Whenever I asked him to talk about something, and it isn't always about baseball. It was about, it could be about my personal life. It could be about, you know, something I want to talk to him about. Well, the weather's nice today, and but never has he turned his back and walked away from me. But the point is, it's the young reporters today that are different than the young reporters when I was a young reporter. When I was a young reporter, there was none of these media scrums. There was none of these pregame pressers that were being broadcast all over the place. There was none of this, okay? There was establishing your relationship with the people you cover one-on-one. So in those days, we would go into the manager's office. And I did it tons of times with, you know, with Joe Torrey as a Met manager in my early days at Fordham and more, more succinctly with Bobby Valentine later. And the great ways you connected with them were not in the scrums. They were in after the scrums. They were walking down the hallway. They were just talking about things. And I'll give you a prime example of it. The night Roger Clemens intentionally beamed Mike Piazza in the head with a baseball, We're in Yankee Stadium, and we walk into the media room. (laughs) I don't know why, but in those days, you know, a Met reporter never asked the first question, but I decided I was going to ask the first question on this day, and they took us into the old locker room in Yankee Stadium. the old Yankee Stadium, remember, not the new one. And I said to Bobby Valentine, I said, do you think Roger Clemens threw him on purpose? And Bobby looked at me and said, you're a good reporter. What do you think? I said, well, all I know is Piazza stands far away from the plate, and Clemens couldn't get him out for the last two years. And then he took his finger and pointed to his nose as if to say dead on. My point is I could have never had that diatribe in a public setting with Bobby Valentine unless I had established relationships with him prior. Well, that's down in spring training going to grab a slice of pizza and asking him a question saying, what is the five infielders you use in a, in a walk-off situation? Why do you do that? Why do you have John Oler who hold a runner differently than most first basemen do? And I asked him that question because I wanted to know, but I didn't want to ask him in the middle of a scrum to make him feel embarrassed. I asked him when I'm walking in the corridor at Shay Stadium. And I've done the same thing with Mickey Calloway this year. And I actually did a bad job of it last year because I didn't do enough of that. And I've gotten to know Mickey. And again, today, I hear it again. Okay? With the Rosario thing, okay. Now they weren't mad that Callaway didn't tell them. I wasn't at the pregame presser that that Mickey has with the big reporters because I'm not on the road trip. But to me, when you ask the question, why is it Rosario in the lineup, and Mickey says it was a scheduled off day, that committee was scheduled an hour ago. That committee was scheduled last weekend. That committee was scheduled in April. It needed a follow-up question of, okay, it was scheduled. Was this scheduled because of things that happened yesterday? Now, they announced it on SNY, which and and, and for those of you who don't know about this in the pregame, the beat the beat guys get a pregame presser with the manager, and then afterwards, after Ed Coleman does his pregame interview for the radio side and records it, he sits and talks to all of the. Guys doing a broadcast, sometimes it's SNY. if it's a national game, he'll sit with the Fox or ESPN people. And I'm sure that when they got in that room, somebody on that broadcast, whether it was Keith, whether it was Wayne Randazzo, whoever it was on the radio side, whoever it was, asked a follow-up question that should have been asked in the pregame scrum. Yet, when it came out on SNY y that it was a disciplinary measure, everyone was up in arms about it on Twitter. How can you do this? How can you do this? My question is, how do you not ask the follow-up question? If I'm your editor, I want to know why you didn't ask the follow-up question to the pregame presser, and why the people doing the broadcast had the temerity to do it when they were with Mickey. And to me, that's the issue. That's one issue issue over. But the second thing I wanted to say is, the big part of that story, if you wanted to circle it 360, is the Mets got three base hits today on the infield because their players hustled. Don't tell me it had nothing to do with, in the back of their mind, what was done to Rosario. But you'll never hear that today. You won't hear Mickey getting credit for that. You won't hear Mickey getting credit for that. But I really believe those two things were very related,
0: Mike. No, I mean, that's a fair point. I think there's another take you can, you can put with the Rosario thing is maybe they didn't want to embarrass him. Maybe they didn't want it to get out. And um, maybe there's a leak. I don't know if this came from Mickey to the SNY crew. Maybe there's a leak on the uh, the coaching staff. We saw that with the chair thing coming out. You know, we've seen mm-hmm. some things leak out. Uh, we know that there's been some coaches imported uh, midseason. I don't know if a player is the leak or what. I mean, that's a fracture. That's when a team is losing. Those are the kind of fractures there. There's uh, Andy Martino talked about this over at SNY. That might be your bigger concern, uh, if I'm Mickey or Brody, is – you know, I got people chirping out of school because it sounded like in the post game, Mickey did not want that to be uh, put out there. Uh, and right. maybe he put it out there and didn't think SNY would repeat it, which in that case, shame on him. That's not how this works. Once you talk to the booth, right. uh, it's out there. And I think it was Randazzo that reported it on the air. And maybe, Maybe that was something he wasn't supposed to say. You'll find out. Maybe and, may, and may, I wasn't in the room. And obviously, if the words off the record are used, this is the
4: other thing about media today. Off the record doesn't mean anything because they're all gossip columnists. That's what they do. Okay, off the record is more interesting than on the record. But I can safely tell you, there is so much that I've heard in my life off the record from big time players in this town, from the Patrick Ewings, from you know the Vinnie Testaverdis to <clears throat> the Mike Diaz's, and. When you have something off the record, and you decide to put it on the record, it's a risk. You're putting all your poker chips in the middle of the table. You better make sure that story is going to make you a star, or it's not worth it destroying that trust. And, and I'll go back to, you know, the Willie Randolph and Omar Minaya met. I had a great relationship with Carl Stogato, great relationship with him. I have a total respect for him. I think the guy was an RBI machine in his career. But I also think I learned a lot about life and how to treat people. And a lot of the media didn't get along with Carlos Delgado. A lot of them just decided they weren't going to talk to him at all. And I thought it was my job to get to know Carlos Delgado. So I, I tried to spend time with him. There was one day where we Yankee Stadium, he had a bad game. I don't know if he made an error or he had an offer for that day. And I got to the scrum late and I asked him a question that had already been asked. And he was very um, nasty to me about it. I won't even repeat it on your show because it's a word that shouldn't be used on the air. And I just went along my way away, finished my job. and Next day, we were in Shea Stadium because I remember we were playing the Twins. And I think about that because the Mets are about to play the Twins. We are playing the Twins in interleague at Shea Stadium, and he calls me over. And he apologized. He said, you know, Rich, you're the last person I should have done that to. And I looked at him and I said, look, Carlos, everyone has a bad day. I don't even want to tell you the amount of bad days I've had in my life. And we went on in that. But I will tell you this, when he yelled at me in the scrum, a lot of fellow reporters knew that I was friendly with Delgado and I was just to defend him to them. And they tried to get me to say, see, see, he turned on you. And I didn't want to look at it that way. I looked at it as someone just had a bad day and lost it. And I didn't take it personally. Um, and And I think that there's so much stuff that players want to give off the record, and they're afraid to. They're afraid to, because they know that the editors are pushing people for clicks, and they know everything that has to be done. And they know that, you know, a lot of these reporters, you know, they work for companies that don't really care about the final score. They care about who likes who in the locker room. Well, they I'll care about I'll who's jealous about... of who. They care about who, if they get traded, they're going to go to the organization and say, now trade me. And i got to be honest with you, that's not why I became a reporter. I became a reporter because I love the game. I love that three hours between the white lines, watching it, figuring out what the next play is going to be, and then getting player reaction afterwards. And, you know, you gave me real good advice the last few months, Mike, and you're a great friend, and I appreciate it, that I have to be who I am, and that's who I am. Now, I sat and watched this stuff about Brody, you know, on social media for weeks. I kept quiet. I wrote the column yesterday because I just couldn't keep quiet any longer. And I think that he's a guy that can lead this team out of the wilderness. And I think it's going to take some time to do that. You know, it's going to take some changes. It's going to take some movement.
0: But I do think he's the right guy for it. I'm going to play for you, Rich. It's like a two-minute clip, so bear with me. Pete Alonso Mm -hmm. was on with Randazzo and Gelbs, and he talked about the reaction to people reporting over the last couple of years to his bad defense. And I think there's some real interesting uh, take from Pete because it goes into stigma and being labeled, and I think this is important. So just, just listen to this for a minute
5: you have mentioned mm-hmm. your defense and it was a, a hot topic in spring training going into this year that that you needed to work on that to become an adequate defensive first baseman and I think you've
0: passed all of those tests with flying colors to this point but were you even aware of the scouting reports is that something that you paid attention to and, and as far as how your defense has come along you know what what has what has gone into all the work you've put in and into it? and
5: by the way before you answer that question I'm gonna, I was wondering whether or not I was ever going to tell you this but now that you are this good defensively because I'd (laughs) say you're past (laughs) adequate. I'm going to give you what I'm sure you've heard these scouting reports because you just kind of smirked when you were asked about this. Yeah. I was talking to a scout maybe a year and a half ago and he said one of the best minor league bats I've ever seen but he might get hit in the face with a baseball on the field. That was what the scouting report was. So now go ahead. (laughs) Can I curse? (laughs) You can. We might have to edit it out. (laughs) Alright, that's fine. Well, I've read some of the stuff, and, I, and for me, it's like, yeah, like, I guess kind of scouts, it's, it's, it's different because for me, it's like, once you have a stigma, people don't do their due diligence and research, and they just, it's kind of like the, the mob effect. It's like, when someone says something, it's like, and also in the minor leagues, you don't cover it. You don't see, it, like, yes, like, numeric, numbers-wise, and I, I, was, I was bad. I was bad in, in 2017. But people don't take into consideration i missed I missed half the year with a broken hand. People don't see that it took it took a really long time not offensively but defensively to actually get my rhythm back um, I mean missing half the year is, is tough coming back to uh, from that and then also the fields are are aren't great at all like bad fields and it's not like up up here it's like it's like you could eat off the field it's it's a pool table it's like um I mean, for the for the most part. Yep. Uh, for up here, like it's it's a lot different. The conditions down there, it's a lot it's a lot different. And to me, it's like people don't take into consideration. They don't watch. They don't necessarily. They can read a report and they can have their own opinion. And for me, it's like I I do. I it was hard because a lot of people. It's like if I made a good play and just be like, oh yeah, but. Or it's like if I'm doing anything, there's oh but right. Um, and I just think that most of it was, was kind of bullshit mm-hmm. and it's a mad, it's just a matter of working hard to prove people wrong. And, um, it's, it's like I had a chip and I want to get better and I don't want to, and I want to prove even more so that I'm not, that I'm not that I'm not, I'm, I'm not at all what you people are saying.
0: And Rich, to me, that three minute clip, uh, what Pete said is exactly what this entire organization right now needs to do. Because I believe that there's good, you know, even Francesca said on Friday when he interviewed Brody, there's some good stuff going on here. Things have been bad. Uh, They've made mistakes. But everybody's kind of doing the pile-on and the stigma, as Pete said. Mm -hmm. So the Mets are kind of a synopsis of what Pete Alonso's gone through the last couple of years. And uh, imagine if the Mets base their analysis on Pete on exactly what he said. I I think there was a lot in that clip that goes back to what we've talked about.
4: I don't think there's any question, and I'll give you another thing. What he told me sounds like the same exact stuff we heard about Michael Conforto defensively. I I mean, when when he came up, people said, oh, he can hit, but he's going to be a butcher in the outfield. Well, he's such a butcher in the outfield that I think he's played three positions now. I don't think he's a prototypical center fielder. But he's playing the position, and he's doing an average job there. But as a corner outfielder, he has an arm. He has speed. I've seen him jump over the wall to get a ball. I've seen him crash into the wall. I've seen him dive to make a catch. So, you know, i got to wonder what these people are watching. And I, I, and I think sometimes what ends up happening is that, and what I try to do when I'm, I haven't seen a player is I, I talk to scouts. And I want to emphasize that word scouts, the plural of the word. Not the singular. I don't pick one scout that I know and ask him everything about a player. I pick a whole bunch of scouts, and I try to see what are the common threads in those things. And then I might make an assessment about a player, but I'm never going to say anything in the assessment that's ascertained as the absolute truth until I see the player. Okay? And I spent a lot of time in spring training watching Pete Alonzo work at first base. I'm not surprised he's scooping the balls that he is, because I saw him do it the whole spring training. I'm not surprised he's diving. I'm not surprised he's positioned well. He worked really hard at it. Now, I didn't see him the year before, so I have nothing to compare it to on how he may have looked before he did all the improvements in his game. But to me, he's an above-average first baseman. I'm not saying he's a gold-glove first baseman, but he's certainly not the hack that everyone made him out to be. And, you know, it's just... That's why I always have to, you know, when you go to a racetrack, what do you do? You've been on a horse and you go by, you know, what the horse has done, okay? And to me, I do that with reporters, okay? If a type of reporter who's given me 20 trade rumors and 19 of them haven't come true, well, then I know one of them did, but I can't sit here and say that I'm going to believe that. When Ken Rosenthal has a trade rumor, I know it's true because – Ninety-nine and nine percent of the time, he's right. Okay, now, so it, there's a, and I think fans need to do that. They need to look at track records of people that are reporting things to them and understand what it is. And I think what we saw today, with Rosario was not even about anything else other than they were scooped on a story by SNY. And well, I think they the, was problem, the, SNY
0: the problem, the problem with that the is they team they, team they didn't have to be, right. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mike. Go ahead. Like also, that's okay. They're also mad. They're mad because, um, you know, Brody when Matthew, uh, when Matthew Allen was in town, didn't want to speak to them about anything but Matthew Allen, which was the right thing to do. I think the Seven Line event where he basically hung out with the Seven Line and didn't really do any press conference. I think this has been building up, and I think Mickey um, he tries to keep things internal, and only gives them what he has to. And, he, and it gets exacerbated because it's not being controlled. Uh, I think there's a lot of anger that, that led to this weekend, led to the anger that he didn't speak before the All-Star break, because I think it, it dates back to Chicago and the unfortunate situation with Tim Healy and then Brody and Matthew Allen and then Brody in the seven line. I think a lot of this is built up, and now you know listen to what Pete Alonso said. There's a stigma. You know This team now has a stigma. The fans are angry. The fans have made up their mind. Brody's job just got a lot harder, not just because the team right now, the certainty of pitching is not so certain, and the uncertainty of offense is a little bit more certain with some of the guys, but now he's got this stigma that the media has attached to him. I think a guy that rises through the ranks, think about this, Rich. Mark Carrig said on a podcast on The Athletic that Brody probably was a bad choice for the job because he's never managed it up in his life, and now he has to manage up. With the Wilpons. And I'm saying to myself, he ran the baseball division at CAA. Do you think that he never managed up throughout that entire process? Really? I mean, it's mind-boggling, but this is what he's faced with. And this is going to make the job harder. It's part of the territory. I think when we we talk on these podcasts, I'd like to kind of, I'd like to look at this, not to be an apologist, not to bash the media, but to say, hey, guys, You've got to look at this from more of a macro point of view. Things aren't all that bad. You cannot focus on your happiness or negativity about this team on the nine games under. It's about the entire pie here and what he's trying to do. And, and now he's been stigmatized, and I hope to try to take some of that stigma away. And speaking of which, Rich, I'm going to throw this out at you. Uh, I said this in the open. I think Robinson Cano, and I said he had three hits today. He actually had four, as I was looking at the box score while we were talking. Uh, so shame on me. I sure him a hit. Had the home run yesterday, home run today. Uh, I would still bet on Cano, like you said earlier, Not for one, for one reason. Uh, this guy wants to be a Hall of Famer. He's about 460, 70 hits away. He's going to need about 150, 160 hits a year over the next two, three years to accomplish that. Uh, I think before you put him out the pasture – I think Robinson Cano is going to want to make the Hall of Fame, and I think he's going to want 3,000 hits. And if anything, that's why I'd be bullish. Forget about whether he does it for himself or the team. I don't care. You hit, you hit. To me, that's one of the main reasons why I'd bet on Cano. Thoughts on that?
4: I agree, and I think baseball's a different sport than any other in that it's really you're individualized when you're in the batter's box, but you're part of a team when you're on defense. And... But that means that even if a game's ten nothing, one nothing, whatever it is, blow out, but that fourth at bat, it could be the difference between you going two for four that day or one for four that day. And that's the difference between for the day, a two fifty batting average or a five hundred batting average. Pitchers the same thing, they get their dirty line starts, they don't care what they're in, they wanna they wanna win that game, they wanna have a good, you know, pitching line that day. So there is an individualistic sense to baseball that you don't see in all the other sports, but you're also on a team when you're out in defense. You have to be able to hit the cutoff man. You have to be able to turn the double play if it's a middle infielder. You know, I think Cano's ability, I look at his swing, and I'm no, you know, metric guy in terms of analyzing swings, but from the naked eye, his swing doesn't look any different to me than it did when he was a Yankee, you know? It looks like he's he's getting his bat through the strike zone as quickly as he was as a Yankee. It looks like his foot transfer is the same. It looks like everything is the same that was there. I think he was in a slump, and one of the things I noticed when he was in slumps in the past of his career is because I don't just watch games. I come home and I look at old baseball games and footage and try to find out what if I can see something that's awry. And I will say this: when Robinson Cano had been in slumps in his previous tenure, both the Mariners and the Yankees. How he got out of it was starting to hit to the opposite fields. That's how he got out of it. Um, using left field, using left center. Now, with the, the shifts the way they are, that's been good for him up to the All-Star break. But this series was the first series where I really saw him take the balls and yank them down the right field line. He did a little bit of it before the break, but not a tremendous amount. But I think He's trying to hit to the opposite field because he wanted to get his barrel on the ball in as, as direct as possible. And I don't know if you've noticed, whenever he's hit a fly ball to the outfield that looks like he swung and hit it well, but it's at the end of the bat, he gets real frustrated with that because he's a big guy having the barrel of the bat hit the ball directly, geometrically, that will make it be a line drive. And for the first time this weekend, I saw that. So this is a guy that's been working hard at trying to get his swing back and really working the same way he's always worked in doing that over the years when he slumped. And I think he's going to, you know, I think he's going to take off for that. And I think that, you know, but he's in a can't-win situation because if he takes off now, people, I saw it on Twitter today, oh, Cano hit another homer today when the Mets season's already over. Like, I saw it on Twitter, and it, it's that's not what this is about. You know, you look at the Mets and where they are right now, the division is so out of the realm, you almost have to put it aside. You can't really talk about any playoff possibilities until you get back to 500. But I do know something. I know the Mets are behind a lot of teams in the wild card, but I believe there's six back in the lost column. Now, yeah. That's a lot of games to make up in half a season, six games, and it's a lot of teams you've got to leapfrog over. But I was talking to Michael Conforto about this before the break, and I told him that I thought that this team reminded me a lot of the 2016 team. Now, the only difference is that team had a bad first half because of injuries and that they weren't hitting, whereas this team is, you know, hitting and doesn't really have a lot, a lot of injuries. They had a few, but really the bullpen and the pitching hasn't been good. But the bullpen and the pitching, to me, has the pedigree to be better. So if the Mets start gaining a one-two punch from Syndergaard and DeGrom like they got this weekend, and other pitchers start doing what they're capable of doing, I think the Mets could, I don't know if they could turn it around and make the playoffs, but I know they can have a better second half. And if you told me before the season and showed me a stat sheet and showed me the ERAs of the starting staff and the bullpen, my analysis would have been, boy, they're going to have a hard time getting a 500. I think as the, the ERAs come down and, and, and DeGroms is finally down to a, an above average level, it's not anywhere near it was last year. But I say this I think he's down somewhere in the mid threes now, his ERA. I bet you any amount of money that he'll be closer to the two run ERA than the three run ERA by the end of the year. Because I, I, that's where I see his game going. Now, I think the right. question for the Mets is, what are they going to do with the other guys in the rotation? Is Matt, is Matt just a flash in the pan that's never going to get to the potential that you think he's going to get to? And which is the real of the one we saw in the first half or the one we saw in the second half last year? And will he even be here? So those are all questions that have to be answered. But to me, the crux of this pitching staff is still the top two guys, DeGrom and Syndergaard, and how that exacta performs – as the rest of the season goes on and really for the future of the Mets down the road and other in subsequent years.
0: I'm going to throw one last thing at you. You want to get rid of Cano, you're a Mets fan. Here's how you do it. You call up the Yankees. You say, you know what, forget about any prospects for Wheeler. I'll give you a Wheeler, take Cano, take the final five years. Edwin Carnacino owns his hitting, you know, a buck 30. Stanton has been hurt. Cano, I know they have LeMahieu, but LeMahieu plays a bunch of positions. Canoka DH, short porch in right field. He's back home, better shot at getting 3,000 hits. They were interested in him before the Mets uh, acquired him. You get yourself the pitcher you need, and now the, the Mets are going to throw Wheeler away, basically. No draft pick, no prospects, but they rid themselves of the next five years. Just something to think about. What do you? What, let's wrap up on that. Well, I, it is something to think about for the Mets. I don't think
4: the Yankees would do it because I don't think that they would take those five years. I think they think they have better options to go after. Um, And I don't know if Wheeler would be enough for them to take the contract. They may want someone higher up in the rotation plane than that. So from the Yankee perspective, I don't think they would do it. From the Met perspective, I think it would be interesting. But, you know, and I know I'm in the minority on this, I want the Mets to hold on to Cano. I, I, I look at his baseball card, and there's just too much there. There's too much there that you know led teams. I mean, people forget there was one year the Yankees made the playoffs, and I don't remember really which year it was, but they made the, they made it because of the September Cano hat, and that's what he's he's capable of putting on a Cespedes type run offensively. Maybe not as much in the power numbers as Cespedes, but certainly in the RBI and batting average numbers, he can do that. So. I think if I were the Yankees, I wouldn't do it, and I think if I was Brody, I wouldn't do it, but it is is—it is an interesting question, no, no doubt about it.
0: Rich, long uh, segment. I really appreciate you being generous with your time on a weekend. Let's do it again. We'll be catching you on ninety eight seventy ESPN and at New York Sports Day. Be well, and uh, we'll catch up.
4: Always a pleasure. we got to do dinner one night, and we got to promise each other dinner. Maybe I'll get my girlfriend to cook us dinner, and... We're not going to talk about anything to do with baseball. We're just going to talk about life. How about that?
0: <laughs> That's right. You got it, man. All right. Rich Catino. you well, buddy. Uh, Rich Catino at Cattino 9 on Twitter. Uh, good stuff. Hey, let's take a quick break. We're going to return and wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to this latest edition of the Talking Mets podcast. As I said at the beginning, if you don't have it yet, Catalogued into your uh, phone, go to Talkin' Mets Podcast, T A L K I N, Mets Podcast.com to get the latest edition of the show. It'll bring you right to Apple Podcasts. You could send me an email at Mike Silva at Talkin' Mets Of course, you get the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I want to thank Rich Catino of 9870SPN and New York Sports Day for joining me today. You can check him out on Twitter at Catino9. Hope everybody's going to have a great week. Enjoy the rest of your uh, weekend. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast pretty soon. Be well, everybody.